But first, to troubles of quite a severe nature gripping Sri Lanka. Earlier this week, police opened fire on a group of people in the country's centre protesting at the rising cost of fuel. It resulted in one death and a dozen injured and much shock throughout the country. It's further rattled the government, which is already in the grip of its worst economic crisis since the country gained independence in 1948. More than 20 million Sri Lankans are now facing crippling power outages and extreme food scarcity, while the government can't meet its foreign debt repayments and it's requested emergency help from the IMF. What's brought the country to its knees like this? Well, a series of shocks have occurred and some dubious decisions from the Rajapaksa government in the past couple of years, including a decision to ban all imported fertiliser, for instance, during the COVID pandemic, plus to dramatically lower taxes. To offer some more detail and context, I'm pleased to welcome a seasoned analyst, Dr. Paya Kasoti Saravanamutu, who is Executive Director for the at the Centre for Policy Alternatives in Sri Lanka. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Could you please give us a little more insight into why the police made the big decision, quite a solemn one, to open fire at these protesters with, with live bullets? Well, we don't know the full details as yet because there's a magisterial inquiry going on. But the argument of the police is is that the protesters were trying to take possession of a bowser with uh, fuel and diesel and whatever, and that that was what set the whole thing alight in terms of the initial provocation for the violence. There's another story that the owners of the shed that the petrol or diesel was in brought to were withholding it until they could sell it at a higher price and that got the protesters all worked up. But clearly, I mean, orders to shoot and to use live ammunition came from above and that should not have been the case. And it should be treated very seriously in terms of the police have a duty after all to protect innocent civilians rather than actors you know, violators mm. of their human rights, etc. Well, harm minimisation usually is yes. guards. And just before we get to details, was this part of a pattern that you can see unfolding? Could you, can, you know, have you been seeing things deteriorate such that you could imagine this would have been just a panic step? Well, I mean, we have been very lucky that violence is not been part of the protest so far, but there's always been the danger, because in the past the Rajpaksa regime have brought out the army, and in the first Rajpaksa regime there were shots fired in a place called Ratapaswala over water, and then against the fishing community and people were killed. So here again there was a fear that, you know, that the government might infiltrate the protesters with people wanting to create mischief and cause violence. So. Violence is always a possibility, mm. or do, a probability, do, as the case might be. Do these protesters want to see a change of government? I mean, what are they calling for? They're calling for Otabe Rajpaksa to leave office and all the Rajpaksas to leave politics. There is an element that's calling for the 225 members of parliament also to go, but the focus is on the Rajpaksas. They have to leave politics that... The dynasty, in political terms, has to end, and they have to be held accountable for the money the protesters allege that they have stolen. Um, 
So, and are there? Is it is it a well led protest? Can can you negotiate? You know, it's always the sort of classic sort of test. Can you negotiate with anybody amongst them? Well, <laughs> that's the big issue. It is a very spontaneous uh, protest of the citizens. There isn't a leadership. It's a flat structure, flat horizontal structure. There isn't that kind of leadership. So in terms of negotiations, no. But what's happening is is that there is the other side of engagement, which is parliament. The opposition has come up with a bill to abolish the presidential system, to bring in new reforms. The government is also talking about bringing new reforms for a limited period of time. So there is that political activity taking place in parliament, and then the simple activity of saying, look, Gosabe Rajpax and the Rajpaxes must be politics taking place in the streets. So these are very dramatic developments at the core of the parliament. Yes, there are, yeah, because, I mean, this has to be resolved because at the same time that this is going on, the finance minister, the secretary of the treasury and the governor of the central bank are in Washington trying to negotiate a deal with the IMF. So we want instant relief, we want long-term debt restructuring, and we want bridging finance mm. to tide us through. Yeah. Look, the, the, this economic crisis um, has really deepened in recent weeks. What has led the Sri Lankan government f- to the place financially it finds itself in right now? A government is unable to pay its foreign debt commitments. The stock exchange in Colombo has been closed all week. They've got the rapidly rising costs of basic goods like fuel and water and a scarcity of fuel and medicines. It, it's, it's very difficult to grasp that something like someone like Sri Lanka is facing this. Well, if I was to sort of put it in sort of in pithy terms, we were a Greece that is fast turning into a Lebanon. You know, after independence, all our governments, we have spent more than we have earned. And as a consequence, the deficit has risen. But this is now being compounded by, you know, this particular regime, the Rajpaksa regime, you know, treating the economy like a chest of war chest that can be sort of, you know, plundered at will for vanity projects under the guise of saying that they're infrastructure projects. So this is where the Chinese come in. The Chinese have provided the finance for the infrastructure projects as well as provided the government the protection in international fora against the allegations of war crimes. But this particular government the Gotabi Rajpaksa government came into office and shrank the tax base to the extent of something like the Treasury losing, as a consequence, 500 to 600 million rupees. Then in addition to that, they decided to go fully organic as far as agricultural fertilizer was concerned, which has caused serious disruptions in the food supply. So all of this has been funded by borrowing Chinese borrowing up to 17%, but the vast bulk of it in the international markets. And the government has insisted that it would pay the international creditors rather than keep their foreign exchange to pay for import bills of essential goods. That's why we've had the fuel crisis, the power blackouts, the scarcities with regard to basic essentials, because we kept paying Mm. for the international sovereign bond holders. Now, we've said we're not doing that, and we finally called to the IMF 
probably one and a half years too late. So you'll default on the, I mean, which is a very significant we decision. Are technical. Yeah, so we are in a technical default, but it's hopefully not going to be a hard default because we might be able to negotiate a restructuring of the debt. Yes, well, you pay, right. So, so um, how far back does, so these sorts of decisions, how far back do they go? This 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 sort of use of debt, because I think you believe the Chinese uh, are, are sort of being, they're not responsible for as much as they're being, the current sort of judgment is. No, they're not. No, absolutely. The Chinese are not responsible for the debt. That is entirely our problem. But the Chinese have been a major player in the economic climate, which has made which has made it possible for the government to be so profligate as far as their spending is concerned. Yeah. Right. And so the the initial, because there have been a lot of IMF loans, haven't there, going right back? Yes, this is the 16th or 17th time that we're going to the IMF. And that's right. The most recent one, I think, was 2016, and, and now you're going for another one right now. Um, mm-hmm. Has the And the IMF's asked for all sorts of conditions related to those loans, hasn't it? Yes, yes. The IMF will ask for conditions in terms of let the exchange rate float, uh, interest rates will have to go up, state-owned enterprises will have to be restructured, we'll have to cut public spending. We have 1.5 billion members of the public service for a country of 20 million or 21 million people is far, far too high. And so it's, it's going to be more painful and get worse before it can get better. Um. It's been three years exactly since the series of Colombo bombings, those terrible bombings that killed nearly 270 yeah. people. Did, did that event play a role at all in this? Well, they played a role insofar as tourism, a major foreign exchange earlier, was affected. And then, of course, the war in the Ukraine has also affected tourism as well as tea because Russia and Ukraine were major buyers of our tea. No, so those have been contributory factors, but they're not the main factors at all for our current predicament. Um, so what is the way out? You say it can get, it'll get worse before it gets better, particularly the, um, the subsidising of food. I mean, this is something that Indonesia deals with all the time, how much you, you devote of your consolidated revenue to food. Yeah. So what... How can you see the next stage, uh, whoever is in power, just keeping well, a lid yeah. on this? Well, we'll have to get this IMF agreement. And part of that IMF agreement, we will meet their conditionalities. But they must allow us to have targeted payments to the very poor so that the cost of adjustment will not fall disproportionately on the poor and have unnecessary social and economic and political costs. So it's going to take, I would imagine three to six months to get that agreement and another six to nine months for the agreement to kick in. And we are going to see a period of about six to seven years until things go back to normal. And if all goes well. Yeah. And what about repayments to China in the midst of that? Do you think they'll carry on or do you think you'll get some sort of um, licence from them? I think the Chinese may agree to do that. What the Chinese 
and not keen on doing is to bail us out completely because there'll be a whole string of other countries lining up to get the same treatment. Mm. Look, it's a final question, slightly different one. Sri Lankan, the yeah. Sri Lankan di- diaspora in Australia is incredibly successful as a group, yeah. adaptable, creative, resilient. It's interesting, you know, it's a very different picture that your your painting of the group we know here to this the some of these endemic issues you're describing. Well, I think there are lots of reasons for that. I mean, a lot of the diaspora have fled the country because they feel that they are not being treated properly uh, for reasons of ethnicity, religion, all of that, and therefore they want to make you know a determined effort to succeed wherever they are. But the government has also asked for assistance from the diaspora in terms of finances. And I guess the diaspora, the question is, look, do we get a bigger bang for our buck, as it were, or is the political instability in the country a major disincentive Mm. to send our money back there? Will the Rajapaksa survive? Well, it doesn't look like they are going to, but we have to make sure that the process of their exit is as least painful as possible and damaging to the country. What a very interesting analysis. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Pakiasoti Saravanamutu, Executive Director at the Centre for Policy Alternatives in Sri Lanka, with a great turn of phrase, it's Greece fast turning into a Lebanon. <laughs> yes, one to keep one's eye on.